0: Galatians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning, beginning in verse 6. We're going to walk all the way through verse 18, which will be the conclusion uh, of this letter. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 6 through 18, it says this. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Amen. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Two really big things we're going we're to see in the text today, just, just simplistically, kind of really encapsulating the, the whole conclusion of this. Two things, one really framed in verses 6 through 10, the other framed in verses 11 through 18. The first is that Paul reminds these brothers and sisters that the life they're to live is one of gospel opportunity. Gospel opportunity. That they have the opportunity, rather than the obligation, to experience what God has done for them. The second is this, and you'll find this in verses 11 through 18. He emphasizes this through gospel certainty. That there is a real hope that is solid, that is valid, that is secure, that is found in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Paul's writing this, and we've all read things that have a thesis, and they have a body, and they have a conclusion, right? And you say what you're going to say in the thesis, and in the body you say all the stuff, and the conclusion you remind everybody what you've already said. And while there's an element to Paul creating this argument and, and really helping these believers see the rationale of trusting in Jesus and Christ alone and that works of the flesh and that things that have, have crept into the church, that, that none of these things make one a believer, that circumcision doesn't make you right with God, that following the law is something that not only you can't do, but because you can't follow all of it, you break all of it. It's not just those things that Paul is doing. He's not just setting up an argument and then making a great one, although he does this. I think there's something a lot more personal really happening in the end of this letter. Because in verses 6 through 10, he tries to really synthesize all of this stuff. And not in a hurried way. It's really intentional. But he's saying, for five plus chapters, we've talked about the intentionality of gospel centrality. Of focusing on what Christ alone has done. Of he's sharing his own story of what Christ has done in him. Justification by faith adoption into God's family, the freedom that comes from being a Christian, what that means for the neighbor and how our call now is to fulfill the law of now love in Christ by loving others. All of this boils down, and it almost seems like he's like, i got to say it one more time. I've got to say it again. Look, we live in the South, and so I want to tell you about what happens at my house when we have dinner with somebody, and I bet it happens at your house too. We do this thing where we eat dinner with folks, and then after dinner, we kind of like, you know, move to the couch, and like you're, you're sitting and talking and spending some more time together, and then we begin saying goodbye, and in our house, there's four stages of goodbyes. There's the couch goodbyes, right? There's the, like, we kind of mosey back to the table, and we're picking up maybe some of the dishes that we left earlier because we said, oh, we'll get that later, and then we have that kind of goodbye. Then we kind of go into the kitchen. And then quite often, at least I'm the culprit of doing this, of saying, like, actually, I kind of still want to eat some of this stuff while I talk to these people and say goodbye. There's the, like, at the door goodbye. And quite often, there's the, like, walk you out the door to the car goodbye. Right? Look, I don't think that, that everybody does that. But I think a number of us in the South can identify with, like, really having a hard time kind of letting go of this amazing thing that we've just enjoyed together. And in a real sense, it seems as if Paul is doing the same thing. Um, I'll tell you about one of these moments in my life where I had this conversation that moved from seemingly every area of my house to literally down the sidewalk in the driveway and you know, perhaps even at the mailbox as I'm already in a moving car. And it's the time I went to college and I didn't go far away, but I had a really pivotal and powerful conversation in which my family tried to do two things with me. One, they tried to help me remember how to live and told me kind of about the opportunities that were before me, things that I could do and not do and those types of things. But then it really culminated with them saying, remember who you are. This is what Paul is doing at the end of this letter. He's like, I've told you this thing on the couch, and I told you this thing at the table, and I told you this thing at the island in the kitchen, and I told you this thing at the door, and I told it to you on the sidewalk, and now I'm telling it to you in the driveway. He says, There's opportunity for you to remember how to live. Gospel opportunity, and there's a deep hope in the certainty of what the gospel is. So let's get out in front and say, again, we're, there's going to be some applicable things today that are very practical for us, and yet at the same time, you're going to hear about Christ crucified and the, and the importance of the gospel. Um, and I can think of no better way to close Galatians than with this guy. He's kind of famous. His name is Martin Luther. Um, he used to preach, and somebody asked him one time, "Legend has it in his church. Uh, hey you, you preach the gospel to us every week. It's just over and over and over again. You preach the gospel to us every week. Why do you do that? And this was his simple and yet effective answer: because week after week you forget it. This is our struggle that we fail to believe in, to rest in, to trust in what Christ has done for us. And as we close Galatians, we have one more beautiful opportunity to see how to live the gospel opportunity and to remember who we are in gospel certainty. Let's start with verse 6 and consider perhaps the strangest portion of this text. Um, in verse 6, we're coming off this passage where Clay did such a good job last week helping us understand that the gospel is the fuel for, the thing that empowers, the thing that energizes us toward bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another, living in such a way that we restore others, that we really meet them in the level of their brokenness in the place that they are. We don't judge or shun or say, I hope they can figure it out, or we, or we send them some advice or some tips and say, get better. Get better. No, we go, we meet them where they are, and we restore them back to the body. And we get this beautiful picture of restoration, which Paul's going to kind of hit on today. But then there's this weird turn, it seems, in verse 6. And he says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So what's happening here is Paul is saying... If you are being taught the Word, if you're the one that's being taught the Word, share all good things, and this means truly, in a very real, practical sense, this is like, this is like fiscal language, this is financial language, this is monetary, material language, share all good things with the one who teaches. Um, so Paul is saying, look, you as the Galatian church, it's your responsibility As people continue to teach you the gospel, people continue to give you the gospel, these pastors and folks who shepherd you, make sure to care for them. And the point is ultimately reverence of the truth of God's word. That these people would celebrate and say, you know what we want to put our energy toward? You know what we want to put ourselves toward? All the things that, that we've been blessed with, we want to put that toward the furtherance of the gospel. So don't hear it as just a pastor, as a person, or someone who works a job, but the furtherance of the gospel. This is the practical opportunity that Paul sets before these believers. Ultimately, this is why here at Double Oak Community Church, we would say we want people to live out the gospel in giving give, let's give to the church so that we can minister and further the gospel. Let's give to ministries so that we can help people understand and experience who Jesus is and what he's done for them. It's important for Paul to interject this here because he wants to centralize them around the solidarity of being the church that he knows that they are. Now, verses 7 through 10, he's going to address three really big things, and you're going to kind of see in a a very synthetic way, a small way, everything that's really been encapsulated from a practical stance of what to do with this truth of the fact that there's no other gospel. Here's the opportunity. The first is this in verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And that word mocked, so often we would we would kind of see that word and see it as like making fun of or joking, but there's, there's a real beautiful linguistic twist that Paul puts on this. One, it's the idea of turning one's nose up. It's the idea of, of saying, hey, I'm better than that. Because what he's seeing these Judaizers do and the people that are attacking the faith that have come into the Galatians church is saying that they know better than the gospel. This other thing is happening where Paul is directly using that language to reference scoffing. And it seemingly, I think what he's doing is saying that that God is not mocked because those who were scoffers, those who mocked what Christ did, ultimately Christ was not merely crucified. He rose again. He rose again. And all of the wisdom of the world is made foolish by the power of the cross. But this is what, what it says, whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So There's this real element of, how do we want to say it? You uh, cause and effect, consequence. You get what you pay for. These things happen, right? That might lead us to the place where we think that, like, well, Paul's really saying that life's about karma. If I do this one thing... Then I'm going to yield this other thing. So if I just do good stuff, maybe I'll have a good life. But he clarifies in verse 8 and dives deeper into what this sowing and reaping means because that language is agrarian language, it's growing language, it's fruit and trees language, it's seed language, and he's pointing back in so many ways to the fruit of the Spirit that we experience in Galatians 5. Look at what he says in verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Two big things here. One, when he talks about reaping corruption, Paul is really talking about the salvation experience and an understanding that if we believe that circumcision is what makes us, what makes us a part of God's family for these Galatians, if they, that's what they believe, if doing this thing, if doing this work makes them who they are, ultimately... To their own flesh, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about marking one's own flesh that 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 is a corrupt thing, that it will reap corruption. Why? If you have your Bible and you can see it, look look back to chapter five and verse three, and you'll remember, you'll see that Paul says, and he's gonna say it again in the latter portion of this text you've been sold a bill of goods. Everybody's telling you, be circumcised, and now you're really going to be a part of the family of God. Do these things, keep the law, have good behavior, embrace the history that you've come from, do all these things, and you will be in Christ. Do the right stuff, and you'll get the thing that you want. Paul says, This is corrupt. Do you know why? Because even the ones teaching you can't obey the law. We're lawbreakers, we're not law keepers. We're not holy. We're going to fail. And Paul says this results in corruption. That life results in corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When Paul says own flesh, he's making it really important or he's making a distinction to say this is something that you do. But when he does not mention own spirit and he just uses the spirit and it's passive, who sows the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. He's showing that this life that I live by faith is not something that I do. This is what Christ has wrought within me. It's the very spirit of God that transforms me in such a way that I would embrace gospel opportunity. Look at verse 9. Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In so many ways, it might sound fatalistic, but Paul recognizes the challenge for these Galatian believers and for all Christians. Do you ever just want to give up? We're not going to answer that candidly in this room. I get that. But I want you to think about this. And especially with regard to doing good. There's a famous psalm, Psalm 73, where one describes a walk with the Lord, and yet he's experiencing pain and turmoil and trouble, and yet all these who live for themselves are just fine. Thriving, even, perhaps, in his view, right? Sometimes we do good, and not in and of ourselves, but only by the Spirit, but we're obedient to the Lord, we're following, we're investing in that person, we're investing in that thing, we're ministering to someone, we're caring for someone, and we just feel like we don't know if anything is ever going to change. How do we get to the place where we continually long to do good, where we continually want to pursue people outside us, where we want to run after our neighbors, we want to care for people, we want to share the gospel? And I'm not just talking about like four spiritual laws here. I'm talking about like telling people the story of the good news of what Jesus has done in you. How do you not grow weary doing that? You don't grow weary when you realize it's the spirit that yields eternal life. It's the spirit that is working in us. And so it's our job to just be obedient practically and do good. And that word good is not just the kind of like ice cream's good, right? Pizza's good. College football is good, right? Thank you. uh, Turkey dressing, all of these things. I almost said stuffing, and I'm not, I would never have that, so I don't know why I said that. Um, all of these things are good. I'm sure stuffing's good too, I'm just not super familiar. Um, but that's not just, that's not the language Paul is using here. He's using good in this cosmic spiritual way, this powerful way, because when he says good, this is not just good as in the opposite of bad. He's talking about Garden of Eden good. Doing good as being restorative. That's why chapter 6 starts with this understanding, this recognition, this reality that what it means to be in Christ and to live in the reality of the gospel. We talk about this a lot, that at Double Oak Community Church, we want to be gospel people. We want to be people who are marked by, who are characterized by, who are shaped by. Our identity is what Christ has done for us. That's our identity. And to that end, we're called to believe in the gospel, to rest in, to trust in what Jesus has done, to live in its reality. That means being in community together. And this is what Paul is saying here in this moment. I mean, what it means to really be a Christian, what it means to be God's child is to be restorative, to bring brothers and sisters along, to meet them in their pain and to walk with them. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like doing good is not just a good thing, it's a God thing. It's a restorative thing. It's an encouraging thing. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for them about making all things new, and that garden that was tainted with sin being new once more. Paul is saying, do good. We have an opportunity in verse 10, he says, let us do good to everyone. It sounds beautiful. The reality is it's painful because I think in the middle of everyone, we all know someone, right? Where it's hard for us to say, I don't want to do good to that one. Call to do good to everyone. And then there's this really direct focus that's placed on those who are of the household of faith. What's Paul doing in this moment? In some ways, that might sound strange to say, well, why would we love each other as Christians? Why would we, why would we really do this kind of in this insular way? But the beauty is, is this is correlating with Jesus' commandment. The new commandment that we're given to love one another. And not just in the way that we have designed or the way that we desire, but to love one another as Christ has loved us. Go back into chapter 5 and look at verses 13 through 15. This is the fulfillment of the law. This is what walking in it means. If we're in Christ, this means that we love others. We're free. I'm literally free to forget about myself and to go pour love into others. That's the beauty of what God has given us. So Paul says, do this, be good, be restorative, be connected to, be loving toward those who are the household of faith. Because if we did that, if we really did that, if we really loved one another in that way, we couldn't help for the world to notice. They would see. They would say, why are these people so connected, so loving? This is Paul's vision, his desire, and this is the opportunity that we have as believers. And we'll we'll come back at the end and talk about kind of the practicals of what those looks like. But in this whole section, Paul's saying, remember how to live. You've got gospel opportunity. And then in verses 11 through 18, gospel certainty. The whole tone of everything that happens in 11 through 18 is just really powerful. It's really direct. And you can hear Paul almost just unabashedly in this certain powerful way say, These things are true. And I'm going to bank my life on them. He starts in verse 11 saying, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, if we do a cursory reading, if you're just reading this like a piece of literature, this is going to be the part where you're like, This guy's nuts. This is crazy. We've heard all of this powerful doctrine, and now he's saying, I write big. (laughs) Seems strange. Historically, we think there's some evidence that Paul has some eyesight issues as a result of persecution and things that he's experienced. But also, Paul is saying, I stake my life on this. It would be very common in this day for someone like that we would call an eminence, someone that was taking the things that Paul was saying and writing them down. Someone that probably has perhaps better Greek than Paul, better handwriting than Paul, all of those things and recording these things, recording this letter to the Galatians for him. And it's almost as if Paul reaches and grabs the pen and says, I I have to do this part myself because they have to know how serious I am. I've got to write this part. Do you ever get those texts from people who write in all capital letters and, and they don't know that they're screaming at you, right? That, that's digital screaming. And so if you do that, then today is the first day you found out that you're digitally screaming at others. Um, but this is what Paul's saying. He's like, yeah, I've got to scream this to them. I have to tell this to them. I have to help them understand that this is not coming from somebody, from somebody. I'm writing this with my own hand to tell you the truth. This is like you're pulling out of the driveway, you're really leaving, and I don't know when we're going to talk again. I don't know when we're going to see one another face to face again, and I've got to tell you this. I know I've told you the main thing a bunch of times on the way here, from the couch to the table, from the table to the kitchen, from the kitchen to the doorway, from the doorway to the sidewalk and the sidewalk to the driveway, but I've got to tell you again, and this is what he says. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So two big things are happening here. One, Paul is saying that there's this group of people, these Judaizers that we've talked about for weeks who've come in and said, if you do not... Take the mark of circumcision. If you don't circumcise yourself, then you're not really a part of the covenant people of God. You're not really a part of the real Israel. Paul's going to get to that at the end of this passage. You're not really, truly part of the family of God. You're not really connected to God. You're not really actually religious. None of these things apply to you if you don't do this. And Paul says, one, not only are they trying to do this for themselves to make a good showing of themselves, to make themselves proud of themselves... Because others are proud of them for doing this and winning converts, in a sense. But second, they are doing this because they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, look, the Roman world at this juncture is one of enormous power. And like any other power that's ever existed, it's not the only thing out there. And there are other people and other cultures that exist, one of which is this group of people That are Jewish. And while the Jewish people would not be revered in Rome, like Rome would would view people that were a part of the empire, they were typically good citizens and went along well and didn't really bother anybody. But these who were marked by the gospel, these people who boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ, these people who said, I trust in what Christ has done for me and it's changed everything. Life is found in him. These people were viewed to be rebels. They were viewed as those who did not submit to Roman holidays, to Roman customs, to Roman authorities, all of these things, and as a result, Christians would be persecuted. So Paul is saying, "Don't you get it. These people would rather you look like a Jew. Then profess Christ out of fear of persecution. He exposes their cowardice and in verse 13 he says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Because here's the reality. They know that they can't keep the whole law. Look back to chapter 5 and verse 3. You're going to see this. This is the point. They don't keep the whole thing. They're saying, be circumcised, and they don't keep the fullness of the law. Paul says, fine, you want to be circumcised? Great. you got to keep everything else as well. you got to keep it all. You have to do it all. He says, no, this is not possible. You can't do this. They desire to do this now because even of their own insecurities, they can't keep the law, but this is what they've decided they want to do now. They want to boast in your flesh. This is the thing that is the new righteousness for them. Paul says all of this is foolishness. And with deep certainty, this is what he said, far be it from me, in verse 14, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul centers on, circumc- or centers on crucifixion. He says, this is everything. It's why for years in our faith we've sung, can we just be frank about it? We sang blood songs this morning, right? It's real to us that we are washed white by the blood of Jesus Christ, that as Christ shed blood for us, that is the true, real, actual, substitutionary atonement for our sins, The banner verse. If 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 you aren't familiar with Galatians, if we hadn't walked through this together, if you hadn't been in a spot where you knew this portion of the New Testament very well, there is one verse in Galatians that is that you might not know by heart, but likely in so many ways you've heard. And it's Galatians chapter two and verse twenty, and Paul will say this: "I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live." But it's Christ that lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what salvation is. This is what life is. And Paul is certain of this. He says the world has been crucified to him. The world is dead to him. And he himself to the world, because this is what he sees, and this is the reality and the certainty that gives way to opportunity. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What does it mean to have life in God? What does it mean to have peace with your Maker? What does it mean to not live under the weight of guilt and shame? It's not becoming better. Paul does not put steps forth for people to get better. I will say just this personally. My heart breaks for all of us who live under the guise of a world that says, just buy this thing, just get this car, just get this house, just get this title, just have a relationship with this person, get this thing, and things will be better. I can't get better, and you can't either. But I can be made new. Totally transformed by the goodness of God in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is what Paul is driving home here at the end. And he says, and as for all, and he does, this is so He's so sarcastic, like he's really sarcastic right here. And I want you to see it and feel it because he's doing it with a gospel power. All right, He's saying, and as for all who walk by this rule, and this is the jab. He's saying, do you want a rule? I'll give you the rule. The rule is the law of Christ. It's the law of love. This is how you live. This is what it means to experience God. He says, for all those that live in that, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So Paul says to all of you who are working so hard to recover Israel, to become Israel, he says, no, the real Israel of God is those who are in Christ because Christ is the one who has made Israel new. This beautiful thing, and the last line of this text closes where it starts, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Just as he talked about grace and peace in the beginning, The exit is in grace as well. Paul has said so many things. At the conclusion of this, two big things jump off the page. One, he says to believers, and this is for us, remember who you are. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus and your behavior and the things that you do don't make you who you are. Who you are is defined by what Jesus Christ has done. Remember that. The second thing, Remember how to live. You've got gospel opportunity to not grow weary in doing good. One, there's a big push here, it seems, for believers to be connected. I would, as Clay asked you last week, I would encourage you, man, join a community group. Be part of a community group. Connect to other believers in this place. Find people that can rejoice with you in the seasons of rejoicing and weep with you in moments of pain and come alongside you and bear your burden and be connected to you. And then also, as the believer, you're called to not grow weary of doing good. This means that there are those of you who have a neighbor that has nowhere to go to Thanksgiving with this week that you need to invite to come and eat with you. Even if they're a stuffing person, all right? There are people in our community, people in every circle that God has placed us in that have needs. Some of them just need a word of encouragement. That's doing good this week. Going to a place where we encourage and love them. But all of the things that we do, because we're going to be compelled to do things when we leave this place. You're a human being, not a human doing. (laughs) The state in which you are in Christ defines the things that you do. And let's leave this place this morning as people who have gospel opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with others, but we do so not as a project, not as as an assignment, but with opportunity. Because we're certain of what Christ has done for us. There's no other gospel. There's no other source of good news for us apart from Christ crucified. So this morning, we're going to sing that and proclaim that together. I'd encourage you uh, to stand, and we're going to take an opportunity to sing and to respond. Um, And man, really celebrate this morning something um, so, so special as Peyton Garrett's coming to be baptized this morning. Uh, so she and Mike and Melissa and I are going to walk toward the back and, and prepare this opportunity uh, for her to come and be baptized. And I know you'll be praying for them during this moment. Um, man, we live in a world that's, that is, is challenging and that says that there's other ways, there's the next thing. My brothers, my sisters, there is no other gospel. There is no other good news apart from that of Jesus Christ. And that is good news more than we can ever imagine. God be praised. Um, If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, this morning we long to celebrate who you are and what you've done. To through faith accept the certainty of Christ crucified, resurrected at your right hand. Father, there's opportunity for us to go share and live out this gospel with others. Would you give us the wisdom by the power of the Spirit to do that? Would you help us be people that preach the gospel to ourselves daily? We spend time with you to rest in these truths and not grow weary in doing good. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.